If you want to upset your expectations, then become a Christian. When you become a Christian, things become different, for things are different with God. Matter of fact, God has a way of disquieting this world. God has a way of upsetting this fallen world. 1 Corinthians 1.28, Paul wrote, and Paul said, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now, by the time our story ends this morning, a young, insignificant, no-name shepherd boy whose God's anointed will bring to nothing, bring to nothing, the Philistines' great champion, Goliath. You see, the story of David is a story of the unexpected, a little boy. A little man, so small, weak, insignificant, but he becomes great as the Lord does the otherworldly through this young boy. The Lord does the otherworldly, and the Lord does the unexpected. That's the title of my sermon this morning, The Unexpected where we see God and we see things differently. We see God work differently. That is our God. He is otherworldly, and as he is otherworldly, so too his people. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now, Samuel was grieved. Now, Samuel was grieving Saul, He's grieving. He's not grieving because Tom Brady now has more Super Bowl rings than his or your favorite franchise, your favorite team. He's not grieving because he found out, just found out that no amendment is absolute. As terrible as these things are, his grief is spiritual. The Lord has rejected Israel's king. The Lord has rejected the one who was to protect Israel. He has rejected the one who is to protect, to promote, to provide for God's people. Their spiritual head was rejected. And so Samuel's grief was like what follows a ministerial scandal. My wife still grieves her childhood minister who committed adultery. And the pain that it caused a little girl in church, the pain that it caused the entire church, but a little girl who is now full grown, the pain is still real. The pain is still there. It's real. And Samuel is justified to grieve, but in the midst of this grief and this ministerial scandal and the rejection of Saul, God offers his promise, and in his promise is hope. And in God's promise, things change. And this grief will be turned to joy. And that is the work of the Lord. He does the unexpected. He tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. 
Now, filling horns with oil and going only means one thing, and that one thing is this. God has found a new king. He says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. The word provided there, the verb provided, literally translates see. God is saying, I see my chosen. The one I chose before the foundation of the earth to lead Israel, I see him. Go and make him king. Now, God saw something in David the world didn't see. We're going to see in a moment his father doesn't even see him. His father doesn't even know he's around. His father, he's so insignificant to the world, he's not even called home. He's insignificant, but yet God sees something great. God sees in David one who will lead his people. And the same goes with David's greater son. The world didn't see anything extraordinary. No form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. Yet God saw in Jesus Christ one who would die to lead his people beyond the grave. And nothing turns our world upside down like Jesus Christ. Nothing defies expectations in this world like the gospel. It's life-altering. Come to Christ and I can promise you an otherworldly life. Come to Christ and your life will be much different. It will be good. It will be better than good. It will be life in Christ. And it will be a life like nothing this world can offer. Nothing like this world. Nothing of this world will be your life in Christ. When God provides... Now, God is providing, and God's plan, though good, has some holes in it. Verse 2, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. You see, Saul knew, Saul knew he was rejected. Samuel told him that much. Saul also knew that a new king was coming. Samuel prophesied that much. Saul also knew that Samuel was the kingmaker, so any move by Samuel outside of his, of his regular ministerial duties would draw the attention of Saul. And so Samuel's not paranoid here. He knows that he could be easily taken out. And so he asks the Lord, how can I go? And so the Lord provided an escape. The Lord said to Samuel, take a heifer with you. Take a heifer and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. When I first read this this past week and taking my notes in preparation for the sermon, I, I read this and I wrote down, shrewd move, Lord. <laughs> That's just what came to mind. Shrewd move, Lord. Clever. It's very clever. Now, if you notice the text, it's very clever. And it's not the truth. Or it's not the whole truth. This wouldn't work with our children, would it? Hey, mom and dad, I want to go out. Where are you going? Who's going to be there? Who are you going with? What are y'all doing there? <laughs> what time are you coming back? And we expect the full, whole truth. We don't want any half-truths. 
This is what scholars call a lie of necessity. A lie of necessity. It's clever. And a lie of necessity preserves truth. The idea of the lie of necessity is to preserve a greater truth, to preserve a greater life. The the, the truth that Samuel is preserving here is his own life. That's the greater truth. He's preserving his own life, and he's preserving the anointing of King David. Now, the question for us as Christians is, can we do lies of necessity? Are we as Christians to practice lies of necessity? I mean, the Bible says do not lie, right? So it's like, can we do this? And I don't see why not. I think as Christians, we must preserve truth. I think as Christians, we must protect life. We should preserve and protect truth. We must be clever, shrewd if need be. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. If and when I have a chance to share the gospel with Mr. LGBTQ+, sorry, I just gender identified, but that's okay, it's okay. I'm not of this world, we're different here. <laughs> but if I'm ever able to share the faith with Mr. LGBTQ+, I, I need to show him his sins and misery. but I'm not going to begin with the seventh commandment because he's not ready for the seventh commandment. Actually, no, he's more than ready. He's ready to fight. If I bring up the biblical view of manhood and womanhood, he is going to want to fight because I instantly make the argument confrontational. I instantly make it political, but I don't want that. I want him to hear the gospel. I want his salvation, and I have nine other commandments. I have nine commandments by which I might show him his sins and misery and how he is delivered from his sins and misery. Am I lying? No. I'm being like a snake in the grass. You know, a snake, he's sneaky, and he comes in to steal your chicken eggs from your coop. He doesn't want to announce his presence. I want to sneak this soul from hell. I am going to give him what he needs in hopes that the gospel works. And as his heart is softened, then I'll bring him back to the seventh. There's cleverness, a lie of necessity. It preserves a greater truth, the hope of salvation, and here the hope of life and the anointing of David. And He says, verse 3, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. There's a sacrifice after all. It's going to be one of David's or Jesse's sons who would become king. And Samuel did, verse 4, what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. So Samuel comes to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city, they come out and meet Samuel trembling. They're afraid. Now, why are they afraid? They're afraid because Samuel's a judge. As the judge Come to bring condemnation? And he says, no, do you come peaceably? And he says, yes, peaceably. He's not come to judge, he's come to worship. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So he's come to worship. He's come to bless the Bethlehemites, bless them with worship, but even more importantly, bless one of their sons. One of their sons will become king. And so he says, consecrate yourselves. 
He calls the Bethlehemites. He commands that they consecrate themselves and they come to me to the sacrifices. That is, consecrate yourself for worship. Consecration meant that the people had to place themselves in a condition of ritual cleanliness. They had to go and do Torah and become ritually clean. They had to prepare for worship. They had to put away the world and to come into God's presence. And this is kind of like what we do in our church when we come to worship. We have that moment of silence before the liturgy. It's just a tradition in this church, a type of consecration, if you will, where we're putting away the world and preparing to come before a holy God. You know, we need to put away the frustrations that we had with our kids you know, who wouldn't get ready on time to come to church. Or perhaps we have to put away that frustration of the guy who cut me off on the way to church. How dare you? We have to put away this world, prepare our hearts for worship. That's what the Lord is calling his people to do in this text. And so Samuel has come to bless them and particularly a particular family, and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. So Jesse's family is now coming to worship. In verse 6, when they came, he looked, Samuel looked on Elab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Now notice clearly in the text, the Lord has called Samuel to go and to anoint David, but he hasn't given Samuel any direction. Samuel's in this house, and now Samuel has to judge himself from his own understanding. He's having to decide from his, from his own understanding which is this newborn king. So, uh, so he judges outwardly. He judges, you know, worldly. He picks, oh, obviously it's Elab. You know, Elab's the firstborn. We know that the firstborn's the most important. Well, not if we read Torah. <laughs> Doesn't God have a way of, of unending or undoing natural expectations in Torah? Isn't it very interesting that when God makes these important promises that have these important figures, he doesn't choose the firstborn. He always chooses the last. And it's, it's the same with David, right? Isaiah, Jacob, now David. He doesn't choose Elab, the firstborn. And, um, but, you know, surely it's this guy. He's tall. He's good looking. He's the firstborn. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him. You see, Samuel is judging by worldly standards, but God is saying, no, 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 I'm different. I do things differently here. I do things different because I'm holy. God's holy. You know, the gloriness of God is his holiness, his distinction, his otherness. And the glory of a thing is always its difference. What's the glory of America? The glory of America is that we are the freest people on earth at least on paper. But we are the freest people on earth, and that's the glory of America. But the, and the glory of God is God's difference. God is different. 
There is none like God. That's his glory. There is none as righteous as God. There is none as wise as God. There is none as good, none as compassionate, none as merciful. None as holy. There is none who can create out of nothing. There is none like our God. So of course with God, things are going to be different. Of course our world is going to be turned upside down when we come to God. Of course he's going to defy our expectations. And things are going to be new with God. And quite frankly, they're going to be refreshing. It's going to be peace. For the greatest difference of all with God, the greatest difference with God is a grace greater than our sin. Come to Christ and your life is going to be otherworldly. You're going to be declared righteous. You who are a sinner, when you come to Christ, you are going to be declared righteous as if you've never sinned nor been a sinner, but as if you have been perfectly obedient as Christ is obedient for me. It's otherworldly. It doesn't make sense. But it's the gospel. It defies human logic. And so the Lord hasn't chosen Elab. He's rejected him. Do not look upon his appearance. It has nothing to do with his good looks, his status as firstborn. None, none of these things qualified or None of these things actually disqualified him. His height or the fact that he's firstborn, it doesn't qualify or disqualify. It simply didn't matter. Because for Israel's good, God is looking elsewhere. God is going to see something else. God looks at the heart. So the Lord said, do not look upon his appearance, his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. And this next verse is probably one of the most highlighted verses in all the Bible. So get your highlighter ready, click it. You want to highlight, underline, this is one of the most probably highlighted verses in the Bible. For the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord's different. Man looks on the outward appearance. Man lives by sight. But the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. That is, the Lord judges differently. The Lord judged David's intent, his dreams, his thoughts, his emotions. You see, the Lord saw David's faith. And faith is what really matters. A faith that is powerful, a faith that can move mountains, a faith that sees this world for what it really is. So instead of being mesmerized with the world, we need to be consumed with the world to come. We don't need to live by sight. We need to live by faith. We need to live as if there's a greater reality that only faith can see. And we need to live for that age, for that reality, as if it matters more than this world. We need to live as if this world is passing away. And a greater world is to come, a greater age. You see, we need to live for heaven. And we need to live for God's glory. And when you live for heaven, when you live for God's glory, things in this world will be much different. You'll become much different. 
And you'll find a joy that's greater than this world could ever give. You'll find a joy that's otherworldly, and you will be able to even rejoice in suffering. As Paul says, count it all joy to suffer. How do we count joy? How do we count suffering as joy? Live by faith. And you will see in that suffering, God is working in you a perseverance, strengthening your life, giving you hope and endurance and a faith stronger than anything this world can take over, stronger than anything this world can try its best to destroy. But you'll live by faith and you'll find, well, what you'll find is your only comfort in life and in death, body and soul, in your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And there in Christ, you'll find endurance and joy. So live not by sight, live by faith. And so it's not Elod, but who? And Samuel still doesn't know. As you read the story, he's like, well, show me all the other sons. Who do you got? He brings all his sons, right? And all, he's like, no, nope, that's not the one. That's, he's kind of waiting for the Lord. He doesn't know. He's like, I don't know who it is. And he brings all the sons and he's like, it's none of these. Do you got any more sons? You got to have more sons because it's none of these. Then verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all these your sons? And Jesse says, he basically says, yeah, they're all here. Oh, wait a minute. There is one. He says, there remains yet the youngest. There's this young, small son that's so insignificant. I forgot to even call him from the field. I do have another son, but he's so, he's so, he's so insignificant, I'm not even, even going to tell you his name. We don't even hear his name. He's nobody. He's a shepherd. He's out keeping sheep. You see, Jesse's judging by sight, just as Samuel judged by sight. Now, Jesse's judging by sight, living by sight. David was unsightly. David was a nobody. Jesse didn't even think to call him home. Probably forgot about him altogether. But God sees things differently. And so Samuel said, bring him here. We will not eat until he comes. And verse 12, he sent and brought him in. So David enters, little insignificant David, little nobody. But we do hear that he's ruddy, whatever that is. <laughs> He was a ruddy little fellow. He had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. Now don't get tricked into thinking, oh, ruddy and beautiful eyes and handsome. That's why the Lord chose him. No, again, it's insignificant. If anything, it's the writer's way of telling us it doesn't matter. Because God doesn't look at outward appearance. See, there you go. You're looking again. Oh, you're handsome. See, you're again looking at outward appearances. Oh, he's the one. He's handsome and ruddy. That's what you young people need to put on your uh, Instagram accounts, right? Or whatever, you're, when you're looking for someone. Ruddy with beautiful eyes. <laughs> Dating online. I'm ruddy. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Ruddy. I'm very ruddy. Anyway, <clears throat> I think it means hairy, so don't tell people that. Um, so here he comes. And then the Lord finally says, Yahweh says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the one, defying all expectations, defying human standards, this is the one. Because God does things differently. God's different. He is not like you and me. 
Verse 13, and then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now, the oil in the Bible symbolized the Holy Spirit's favor, which is true. You see, the sign and the thing signified was true. The sign of oil signified the Lord's favor. It was God's favor. And it signified the Spirit. And thus, the writer says, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You see, as the oil worked its way into David's hair, as the oil worked its way into David's spores, so too the Holy Spirit was working into David. You don't see this by sight. This is by faith. And you see through this sacramental union of the thing, of the sign and the thing signified the true spiritual reality. And we have that same sacramental uh, fellowship with God today at the Lord's table where we see bread and wine. But truly with the eyes of faith, we look beyond the bread, we look beyond the wine, and we say we see the true reality the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this meal, we have fellowship with the Holy Trinity. And in this meal, our world is changed upside down or turned upside down. And we are changed. And by faith, we become bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and so united to Christ, that reality of Christ. So it is no longer I who live. It is not I who live, but it's Christ in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the gospel in this meal. And this gospel changes our reality. It will change your life. And you will begin now to live another worldly life as Christ is working in you. And that is the reality of God's signs and seals as this oil here anointed David, so we are anointed by his spirit. So David had the Holy Spirit from that day forward. It's very clear. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So notice there, David has the Holy Spirit from that day forward, but not Saul, however, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, notice the contrast here. David receives the Spirit from that day forward, implying he's not going to lose the Spirit. And then there's Saul, and the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And here we begin to see this contrast between these two kings. There is now an, a rejected king, and there is an accepted king. There is this false king. There is this true king. And so now in the rest of the story, until Saul's death, he is going to fall. He is going to fall from grace harder and harder and harder. And David, meanwhile, is going to rise up. And we see that fall right here in the text. So the spirit departs from Saul, and then it says a harmful, harmful spirit of the Lord tormented him. A harmful spirit. And now we see Saul's condition deteriorating. Not only, is, not only does he not longer have the spirit of the Lord, he has this harmful, evil spirit. The word harmful there could also be translated evil. And the Hebrew word for evil has a wide range of meanings. It, means, it can mean anything from misery to moral perversiveness. And some scholars believe this was an angel of judgment. That is, this was the Lord's way of judging and bringing misery 
to Saul as judgment against his sin. You see, according to Torah, according to Torah, the kings of Israel had to obey God. According to Torah, the king of Israel had to obey God. If you obey God, it will be well with you in the land. If you obey God, it will be well with you in the land flowing with milk and honey. But the day that you do not obey, that day you will surely die. That's the promised curse of the covenant of works. You see, God cursed Saul for failing his word. But David rises. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit is tormenting you. Let the Lord, hey, go and find, you need music. You need good, sweet music to soothe the soul. Old classic tunes to soothe the soul. Y'all know those old classic tunes, good classic music, those old classics to soothe the soul. And Sam, Saul agrees, yes, I need a good music. And God provides, and providentially, it just happened to be providentially, oh, Somebody spoke up. Somebody spoke up in the court. Someone in the court said, I know a guy. We'll get the guy. And it just so happened to be the king, the newly minted king, verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful. He's a man of valor, man of war, prudent in speech, man of good presence. And most importantly, the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. And now what we begin to see in the rest of the story is a bunch of irony. Now, you must know Hebrew narrative loves irony. The Hebrews loved irony. It's one of their favorite figures of speech. They love to tell stories with lots of irony. And this, this story is, reject, is uh, dripping with irony. So now this newly anointed king comes to the throne of Israel. And the rejected king unknowingly seeks relief from the newly anointed king. And then the irony of ironies. Now, not only has God chosen this new king, now Saul chooses him. God chooses him, and now the rejected king is choosing him. And he said to Jesse, and we see that Jesse took a, a donkey, verse 20, a donkey with bread and skin and wine. He sends David to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And notice, and Saul loved him greatly. That's the irony. God loves this new king, and the rejected king now loves the new king. And then even more irony. The chosen king now saves the rejected king. And this is not as we expect. Now, we expect Shakespeare here. That's kind of what we expect, Shakespeare. When you hear that David has invited this newly minted king, and think Shakespeare, right? This newly king is now able to come to the court, and he becomes the armor bearer. He's got all the swords and daggers, and he's behind the king, right behind him. Knives and swords and daggers. What would Shakespeare do? Et tu, Brute? <laughs> Et tu, David? But again, God does the unexpected because... God does things differently. This is God's man. It's God's way. And now this newly minted, anointed king saves the rejected king. 
He's actually a means of grace to Saul. Verse 23, and whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So David, the chosen king, was not a threat to the rejected king. He was a means of grace. He delivered Saul. And this is unexpected. And this is God's other otherness. This is God's way of doing things that defy human standards. And in this way of defying human standards, we find the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ was unlike this world. Unlike Israel's king, Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed Torah. Unlike Adam, he fully obeyed God's word. He fully obeyed the law. And like Adam, he received God's approbation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Here, now enter the kingdom of your glory. Jesus earned heaven. He earned God's favor. But then the unthinkable. God crucified. God crucified. Doesn't make sense. You know, the gospel narrative makes no sense. Look at Jesus' life. Christ was king of kings, but when he came, the people judged him and said, is this not the carpenter's son? Who, who is this? This is nobody. We know who he is. We know his parents. We know his kids. We know his brothers and sisters. He's the little kid that used to run down my street. He's the carpenter's son. Insignificant. He's nobody. And where is he from? Is the Christ to come from Galilee? He's nobody. He's from nowhere. And then the most confusing thing of all, the king of kings suffered and died. And the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And now things are turned utterly upside down. Now because of Christ, life comes from death. Death is victory. Death is gain. Crazy, <laughs> unexpected, and even the most ridiculous of all. The most ridiculous thing of all in Christianity is this. God justifies the wicked. That is, God declares the ungodly, Romans 4.4, God declares the ungodly godly. By faith alone. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are the righteousness of God. You see, Christ died for sinners. And so things are different now for us, totally unexpected. In the place of fear, we have hope. And things are not as they seem. And you may confess to be chief of sinners. You might say, I'm chief of sinners, and I'll remind you, no, you're not. I am. <laughs> Yet I am righteous. We are righteous, beloved by God. You see, the love of God is different, brothers and sisters. The love of God is different. It is a love greater than all your sin. You know that shame that you would never tell another one, that greatest shame that you ever committed? The Bible says Jesus is Lord of your shame. And he remembers it no more. So if you believe, then things are now different. Death is gain, suffering is rejoicing, you are not of this world. 
So set your minds on things above and not on things that are on earth. You've died and you're now, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So seek a better country, a city prepared for us by God because things are different. And they're only going to get worse. But in Christ, we have our only hope. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.